Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Joining us today to discuss the never-ending war on vaping in the United States is Clive Bates, tobacco control policy expert and former director of action on smoking in Health UK. Clive, it's great to see you as always. Hi, Brent. Great to be here. Clive, since uh, summer is fast approaching, I wanted to bring you on to quickly assess the state of play in the U.S. regarding the FDA and vaping. How do you think it's going? Uh, total mess, a uh, chaotic mess would would be um, probably understating uh, the, the degree of dysfunction and misregulation, misinformation that characterizes the regulatory environment in the in the United States. I mean, they've got, I, I read recently 26 million product applications. They've basically allowed seven uh, systems through their through their gate, e-cigarette products through the gateway, all tobacco flavored, all commodity type products, all mass market products. They don't understand what they're dealing with. They don't understand the basic mechanism by which vaping is wiping out smoking. Um, they have no idea when they blunder in and ban all these products or enforce their ridiculous rules, what effects that, that will have. I mean, if they, I mean, people keep asking them to enforce, enforce it, enforce the law. If they did and they took all of those products off, they off the market, they basically have no idea what would happen. They, they have not assessed it. They can't assess it. All they have is a bureaucratic filter that says, unless you're a massive company with you know tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on compliance um, costs, unless you're selling a mass market tobacco flavored product, just forget it. You're, you're not you know you're not going to play here. And the implications of running a regulatory regime like that could be devastating if they actually enforced what they currently say is illegal. So right at the end of May, FDA enforced more retailer uh, warning letters, sent them out as a part of what the agency is calling a nationwide blitz to crack down on the sale of unauthorized e-cigarettes that are popular with youth. Now, FDA has been wielding warning letters before, Clive. You know, is this crackdown for real? It's performative, basically. It's like we need to be seen to be doing something. This is something, so let's do this. It's not. It's not going to make any difference. Um, you know, the the kids who want to vape will find a way to do it. I mean, I keep coming back to this statistic, Brent. You know, cannabis, um, which has been illegal at federal level for you know for for decades, has been illegal at state level for most of the past 25 years. For most of the past 25 years, cannabis use amongst 12th graders in the US has been over 20% past 30 day use. Now, that was enough to trigger a moral panic when it was vaping in, in the United States, when it, when it jumped over 20%. But it's the norm in cannabis, and it's something that is you know pretty well completely illegal. Um, what it has is an illegal supply chain that the the police and enforcement authorities are unable to do really very much about and if we want to get into that space with vaping that is where the na that that is where the fda is basically taking us um you know 
not by thinking that that's what it wants to do, but just by the consequence of its unthinking actions and interventions, in which it doesn't seem to have the first idea that it is actually operating in a market. In a market, people can make buying choices from multiple sources, including illicit trade. I'm sorry, I don't think they know what they're doing. I, they, do, they don't have a grasp of why people are using these products, how serious the public health implications are, what the implications of intervening are in terms of what it will do to smoking rates amongst both adults and adolescents. Um, they, they don't even count it as a good thing if an adolescent switches from smoking to vaping. That's just nothing to them. They shouldn't be doing either, according to FDA. Um, they have no idea about workarounds, about how the underlying um, illicit and grey market commerce works. Um, they're just not interested enough to actually find out how this market actually functions. So they're just doing performative things that look as though they might play well on Capitol Hill or with the Bloomberg complex or with campaign for tobacco free kids so that they look kind of heroic. But in practice, they don't achieve anything other than chaos and a mess. Based on several reports, I understand that the FDA is having some success in blocking products at the point of importation into the country. What do you, what do you know about that? That's very likely to be true. And, you know, but if you if you just take as a frame of reference the illicit drugs trade, we always see the police parading, you know, a pallet full of cocaine and going, you know, oh, look, look, we've just stopped cocaine with a street value of, you know, $8 million or something. And yet, sailing behind you is another container full of cocaine that hasn't been intercepted. And what do we find? Um, nobody is suffering. Um, nobody is suffering a shortfall because of these, um, you know, these interventions. And in fact, the price has been going down. So it, it's not what they stop that matters. It's what gets through that matters. And they're obviously not displaying that because they can't. So it's a, it's a sort of it's a drug war performative thing when they say that we're stopping all of these things. It, it makes it look as though they're doing something heroic, but they're not actually doing anything that makes any difference for public health. You can only do that kind of thing from the demand side if you, if you think it's worth doing. And Clive, you had mentioned just briefly earlier, to date, the FDA has authorized 23 tobacco flavored e-cigarette products and devices. The numbers that I would use, I mean, it's a bit misleading because there's 20, been 26 million applications, but some of them have been like from one, you know, millions from a single producer using some kind of automated system. But applications run into millions. Um, they estimated a, a, a few thousand, around, I think, four to five thousand when they did the deeming rule in 2016. So they're basically out by three orders of magnitude. Not often a regulator um, can, you know, can get something wrong by a thousand times, not a thousand percent, a thousand times, and, and still, you know, be taken seriously. I mean, you know, same with the costs. They, they estimated um, costs of a few hundred thousand dollars for each PMTA application. But we're seeing application applicants having to spend 10 to 100 million dollars. 
So again, they're out by orders of magnitude here, not, not just a few percent wrong, but multiple times wrong. And it's just so amateurish um, and so kind of incompetent. And they've created this heavy duty system I mean, I saw them the other day sort of bragging about taking six, six and a half thousand products off the off the market. Every single one of those is safer than every single one of the three thousand cigarette products that are on the market. OK, yet they're somehow trumpeting this as if it's some sort of great success. And all they've done is close a bunch of small businesses and taken a number of people who liked particular products and told them that they can't have them without really knowing what the consequences would be. It's so amateurist, it's so ideologically kind of driven, but in a really naive, simplistic way. I mean, it's very sort of, it has the gloss of sophistication, you know, scientific assessments and, you know, thousand page reports and everything, but basically it's clueless. They don't know what they're dealing with. They don't understand the behavior or the markets or the dynamics in which they're actually operating. And as a result, they've created a chaotic mess. The only good thing I would say is that their chaotic mess isn't as chaotic and messy as the chaotic mess that's been created in Australia. So at least that's something positive to say about the United States. So the FDA has not approved a single non-tobacco flavored product. That, that's I mean, correct. Yeah, so I mean, are they, have they not affected some kind of de facto uh, flavor ban? Yeah, so this is really interesting. Uh, they, they've, I mean, they've authorized twenty three products, um, of which really amount to seven systems when you when you look at the device and the flavors and so on, uh, and the and the um, uh, the liquids. Um, they haven't authorized any flavors and. I think the interesting thing is that given what they've now said is the evidence hurdle for authorizing flavors, it's unlikely, it's very difficult to see how anyone can actually get over that, especially as FDA has introduced those evidence hurdles after the fact and without telling anybody in guidance. So nobody's had the chance to prepare the evidence. But the only way that you could could compile the kind of evidence that they want would be to have a, a database tracking thousands of customers who use the flavored product and use nothing else. OK, now, how often is that a common vaping behavior? I mean, people like flavors because they can switch from one flavor to another. Um, they like to be able to choose. They get bored with key lime pie, so they've gone, you know, let's have tequila sunrise or God knows what, I don't know, call of fruity. You name you name the flavors, they're switching around because that's what makes it fun. But that makes it very difficult to do science on flavored product, on a given flavored product, because nobody's using those products consistently for months or years on end. Um, or you could do randomized control trials, but they would need to be massive to determine the difference in impact between a, a flavored uh, product and a tobacco, non-tobacco flavored and a tobacco flavored product. Um, so the argument here is that without ever declaring a standard, 
FDA have put in place rules that amount to a de facto standard. Now, here's the interesting part. If they did a standard, they, FDA, would have to prove it was appropriate for the protection of public health. So they, FDA, would have to prove that closing down all the vape shops, reducing everybody's choice to nil, uh, to just tobacco, to wiping out nearly all of the market, uh, whilst leaving all the cigarettes in place, there they would be required to prove that was the right thing for public health. If they do it this other way, which is by making everybody, um, every one of the thousands of potential applicants, all prove that their flavour individually is appropriate for the protection of public health, no one can do that because of the way FDA has set up the rules. So you end up with the same result, but the burden of proof rests with thousands of individual producers who cannot take a view of flavors across the whole market. They cannot, they cannot, for example, say, well, you know, even though it would be an effect, um, we can't include in our application the effect of closing down all the vape stores. Because if you just got rid of our flavor, that wouldn't close down all the vape stores. But if you did that to everyone's flavor, product application by product application at a time, that would close all the vape stores and that would have an aggregate effect. But FDA would not have to justify it. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm, I'm yeah, I do. The, no, no, that's true. I mean, the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, pretty much made it clear back in 2016 that the FDA could not do a flavor ban when it came to vaping. So... They've been trying, you know, six ways to Sunday to figure out a way to incorporate that. And and you just described it perfectly. That's right. And 2018, they, they released something called an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking on flavors and ANPRM, in which they set out basically uh, an agenda to control flavors, which pretty well would have ended up more or less with where we are, are today. But it would have been a product standard and the burden of proof would have been on the FDA. If they do it through uh, the way the, the way they create evidence hurdles in the PMTA process, the burden of proof is on each individual and no individual can take an aggregate view of the effect of all in all other individuals also doing the same thing. So it's a neat trick, but it's been called out in court. Uh, now, and it's been called out as de facto rulemaking, rulemaking by stealth, if you like, and we'll see what the courts make of it. They've yet to actually rule on that, but I think that could become a, a big issue in the litigation in due course. The Fifth Circuit certainly did, you know, in the one case, come out pretty clearly saying that it was arbitrary and capricious. It was like you said, it was rulemaking without the process. Um, and really did look at this issue of the flavors and said that it was de facto, uh, you know, de facto ban. I wonder, do you That's think- That's right, they did, yeah. Yeah, do you think that we might be seeing uh, a change here? Like th this episode, I had Greg Troutman on just about three weeks ago and we titled it Tide Turning because there may be a tide turning in court in the US. Yeah, uh, the courts, um, particularly the Fifth Circuit, but others as well, um, you can sense mounting scepticism amongst the justices. 
Um, we have circuit splits now um, in, in, in the different appeal court circuits, um, which normally, uh, if the issue is substantive and it leaves um, it, it, it leaves uh, either an agency on unsure ground or it leaves industry on unsure ground, that would have to go up to the Supreme Court for resolution. Uh, you can't have split circuits. You can't have, you know, essentially uh, different rules in different parts of the country. Um, so that's going to reach the Supreme Court. Um, Avail Vapor has put its uh, essentially petition that its case be heard by the Supreme Court. And we should get some sort of uh, decision from the court, not, not on the rights and wrongs of the case, but whether they'll hear the case later in the year, probably September, uh, and then we'll see all of these issues coming together um, in in the uh, you know in the Supreme Court, and we'll get a clear decision on whether FDA has been acting unlawfully uh, under the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, and if it has, is in deep trouble because essentially none of its decisions will hold, and it'll have to go back to the drawing board and do it all again. Um, you know, and I, I think. The argument will be if you can't rely on uh, an agency to tell you what you need to do um, in the first place, or it changes what you need to do, but doesn't tell you, uh, except at the point where it rejects your application. That is not a viable basis for regulation, uh, not just in the FDA, not just in the tobacco, not even just in the FDA, but in every aspect of regulation. I mean, what if the people who regulate aviation did that kind of thing? You know, when, you, when you've got, you know, you've got businesses like Boeing investing billions in new aircraft and you find out that, you know, by the time you come to launch the aircraft, the rules have changed and actually the billion you've spent now isn't allowed off the ground. You know, you can't have agencies that change the rules as you're going along. You just can't, you know, you can you can have a process that allows them to change, but there has to be notice, comment, uh, consultation, has to be viable. You have to take into account the costs that people have already sunk into compliance. No regulator would be allowed to behave. I mean, certainly I can say this in the UK, um, no regulator would be allowed to behave in the way that the FDA has behaved in terms of its duties towards tobacco and nicotine in the way that it's treated the vaping community. It's, it's, it's officials, and this is finally happening now, there's some proper oversight coming in. Um, in Britain, you'd be in front of House of Commons select committees and you'd be having your feet held to the fire. We have at last got the House Oversight Committee uh, now going to examine FDA's regulation of these products in the in the wake of the Regan Udall evaluation. Uh, which was pretty scathing, in my opinion. Um, and we've got the courts now saying, starting to see, you know, we, we've got a rogue regulator here, can't stick to the rules, can't even make the rules and certainly can't stick to them. Um, and then we've got things moving towards the Supreme Court. All the while, we've got a steadily increasing number of people convinced that vaping is the right way out of smoking. And you know, the markets are carrying on irrespective of what FDA is doing, because these are products that people want to buy and they want to buy them 
on their own initiatives, in their own interests, with their own money, for their own health and well-being. And that's a process that's very difficult to stop. Clive, I agree with you. The expert panel that was put together for Reagan Udall cited numerous examples where the agency lacked sufficient strategic planning, useful and timely guidance, and internal leadership on critical issues such as finding a balance between science and policy. I mean, that's crazy. And I think overall, um, one of the things about the Reagan Udall panel is they went as far as to say that FDA Center for Tobacco Products has, quote, struggled to function as a regulator in part due to its own policy choices, close quote. That is right. And, and when, when, you, when you think about, well, what do you expect from a regulator? Reagan Udall gave a, a pretty long list of all the things you should expect from a regulator, uh, none of which the FDA was doing successfully. Uh, to me, the report was absolutely devastating. Um, you know, it should, it should, whether it will or not, it, there's no sign of it changing its approach but it should cause a massive rethink uh, about what they're actually doing. But I think they're so kind of naively ideologically driven. They're so eager to please, um, you know, their, their client politicians on the, on the Hill. They're, they're so in the thrall of the Bloomberg funded health uh, and tobacco control groups. There's a group think there there's there's something there's something that's stopping them doing the right thing and it's it's this culture that they have that isn't allowing them to think more deeply about what they're actually dealing with and they don't even want to know really um they're not interested in thinking about whether you know how markets will respond to their interventions they just want it to look good and sound good in a press release and I think it's pretty clear looking at, you know, the memos that were released uh, regarding the Office of Science and the political interference there. I mean, that should be in a normal course of business, a disaster uh, for a regulatory agency to have that political interference be so clearly seen by the public. It, it should be resigning matter. Um, you know, con Congress... Congress basic, basically said to FDA in the Tobacco Control Act, there's going to be innovation in this market, okay? Uh, and that comes from the Institute of Medicine report in 2001, you know, uh, clearing the smoke, the whole basis for innovation uh, in, in tobacco harm reduction. Congress rightly said to FDA, we want you to sort out for us the good innovation from the scam innovation. So uh, at the time, everybody was re re reeling from the scandal of lights and miles. So these were products that looked like they'd be less harmful, looked like that the, you, you, know, you wouldn't be getting as much tar and, and so on from them. But that wasn't the case because of the way they worked. You know, people just smoked them harder and took more puffs and so on. But when you smoke them on a machine, which had a regular puffing regime, you got this difference. So that's false innovation, that's fake innovation, scam innovation. C 
Congress, I think, and it's pretty clear from the statements that were made at the time, were interested in the good innovation. They actually wanted harm reduction to work um, and they wanted FDA to sort the good from the bad. Now, FDA has done the opposite of that. You know, they've actually authorized a cigarette, the, the 22nd century low nicotine cigarette, which is scam innovation. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants a nicotine-free cigarette. Not going to sell, isn't selling. Um, it's just going to scam a few people for the first time they buy it, and then they're never going to use it again. There's no market for that, but FDA has made it a centerpiece of their harm reduction kind of drive by giving it a PMTA and allowing it to make ludicrous claims through an MRTP, the, the promotional uh, approval. At the same time, it's banned... Uh, oh no, it's, it's held in check by court at the moment, but it basically wanted to deny the dual product, a product that's excellent, being used by, at its peak, maybe 3 million adults as an alternative to smoking, was driving down smoking rates, um, was a threat, existential threat to the tobacco industry smoking category. And yet FDA got itself so wound up about Juul for the political reasons about it, not for scientific reasons, um, that it would do anything to please its clients in Congress um, that, um, uh, you know, by, by essentially wiping out Juul. Um, now, you couldn't get a better demonstration of how badly FDA is managing its mandate from Congress than the, the, than the contrast between the way it has treated Juul and the way it treated the 22nd century cigarette. It's outrageous. And Congress should be furious. And I hope they get to this uh, when they have the oversight hearings. So, Clive, you mentioned uh, this standard of appropriate for the protection of public health. Let me ask you, is there any other consumer product in the United States that has to prove, you know, up against that, like a new beer? Do they have to be appropriate for the protection of public health? This, this is the ridiculous thing. I mean, nic nicotine is essentially a lifestyle drug. It's a lifestyle stimulant. People take it, you know, and you can put it in the same category as caffeine or um, moderate alcohol consumption or something like that. Uh, it's legal. Um, it, it It's used by, you know, millions of people. Um, and other than the smoke, not particularly harmful. Nobody, when somebody brings out a new craft beer, nobody says, is this appropriate for the protection of public health? No, because it's beer. You know, that's the whole point. It's beer. It's not intended to be appropriate for the protection of public health. It's intended to be enjoyable. Um, enjoyable. And then the regulator says, well, we want it to be enjoyable, but ac acceptable risk. So the regulator says, well, we don't want any methyl alcohol in this so that you go blind or we don't want you to brew this in vats that have dead rats swimming around in the bottom. Uh, and we and we don't we don't want it to be um, we don't want the containers to explode when you drop them or something like that. that's regulation and standard setting that's in the consumer interest, but isn't designed to turn a product like beer into something it isn't, which is a public health product. Now it's different in vaping because there is, as it happens, 
an incredible public health opportunity because we happen to have cigarettes on the market and therefore there is the opportunity to have uh, products that are incredibly appropriate for the protection of public health. But when you're thinking about the long game, your people are using nicotine not really for health reasons. They're using it because they get sensations, um, hedonistic or functional from it, that they like. It's about pleasure, about enjoyment. It's not about public health in the long run. There's a, there's a short to medium term opportunity for public health, but in the long game, we need to think of it as a recreational stimulant, regulated accordingly. So it sounds like to me that there's an argument to be made that recreational nicotine is the next fight that, to be having. Yeah, I think it's heading that way now. Uh, if, if you look at the uh, tobacco control groups, they, they can't really sustain the arguments without looking like clowns anyway, that, that vaping is just as harmful as smoking. And they, they're having to, make, to try and make that case. You have to make incredible incredibly mendacious statements about science. You, you have to pretend that tiny concentrations of hazardous materials amount to a life-threatening risk and that kind of thing. There, there's no credibility there. They'll never be able to do that. We've seen the reports from NASM, the National Academies of Science. Um, we've seen the PHE reports and the Office of Health Improvement and Disparities report. Massive res research assessments of safety and there's no doubt these products are much much less harmful than smoking so they have shifted the goal away from harm which should be the public health concern into nicotine use and we're now seeing you know drug warrior type rhetoric about moving towards the kind of utopian idea of a nicotine free society the problem is the effort to do that, first of all, is not going to be possible because it's about as likely as we are going to get to a caffeine or alcohol or even illicit drug-free society. People have been talking about that for decades and literally got nowhere. <laughs> what the problem is doing it and thinking that way is that you create barriers to switching to better nicotine products in the course of trying to achieve your nicotine-free utopia. So you end up with more smoking, more ill health as a result. So it's totally counterproductive to think that way. But that's where the battle's heading. It's going to be heading in the, in the direction of, are we trying to deal with harm? Cancer, cardiovascular disease, strokes, well, you know, COPD and all that. Or are we trying to deal with a drug using behavior? In this case, a relatively benign drug that seems to have functional and hedonistic benefits that people like, rather than wiping them out and rendering them incapable. Um, or, or what, you know, what's the fundamental goal? And unless we have clarity on that, you know, is it the nicotine-free society or the society with greatly reduced harm that we're after? And I'm very much in the latter category.